I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 15. Uh, if you're relatively new here, I just kind of want to let you know our normal pattern on Sunday mornings is that we will take a passage of Scripture, that we will start to work through that passage of Scripture. And so uh, so I, ha- if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are Bibles usually in the chairs in front of you, but if you don't have that, we have also printed the passage that we are working with this morning. So you have that as your reference as well inside your bulletin as you came in. Uh, but before I say anything else, I just want to take a moment. Um, I, I, we've all been kind of aware and watching, I'm sure, and maybe not all of us, but to some degree, we have all heard of what is happening in Israel uh, and the difficulty, the atrocity that has been uh, carried out by Hamas. Um, it's no irony that the word Hamas in Hebrew means violence, um, that that is literally what has been carried out uh, against Israel, but uh, not only against Israel, that is the strategy of an entire way of thinking as to how they might not only dominate Israel, but their desire to dominate the entire world is through uh, the imposing of violence upon people who don't agree with them. And so that is the reality, and at the same time, we are uh, recognizing that all of this is happening in a place where God said, that is my land, the land that I am promising to my people, right? And and all of this conflict is taking place. So I wanted to take a moment this morning to make sure that we uh, lift that up in prayer, that we would seek the Lord to uh, bring peace, but ultimately that we would seek him to bring uh, those who are doing violence and uh, those who are being affected by violence. And uh, all, uh, you know, uh, like 2% of Jews believe in Jesus, 2% of, of Palestinians believe in Jesus, and we want them all to know who Jesus the Lord is right and so um so i just want to take a moment to pray for that and seek the lord uh lord jesus we pray that you would indeed bring shalom to jerusalem shalom to your people israel uh lord that you would um that you would in the midst of the conflict find ways to enter in and reveal yourself i thank you even this morning for Debbie, when she prayed during our worship practice, that you would reveal yourself in dreams and vision to those who are seeking to do violence against you. Lord, that you would convince them of your lordship over all things, that you would uh, uh, turn them to repent from their worship of death, and Lord, that you would lead them into life in you. Lord, that you would lead um, the people who recognize themselves as your people who have been following you, that you would lead people, Israelites, Israelis, and and Jewish people to faith in you, to recognize that the scriptures that they have followed for all of these years, they've been pointing to Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, would you bring many to trust you? And Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you bring peace? We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So you can open your Bibles up to Leviticus chapter 15. Uh, Crazy transition, uh, but here we go. I'm just going to call something out at the beginning. 
This passage is one of the most uncomfortable passages in the entire Bible that anybody could sit down to read or that we're all, in fact, going to read here together as a group. Uh, I, uh, I mean, this is the fullest that, uh, that the sanctuary has been, I think, in a while since I've seen, and so that's encouraging to me, but also I just need to give you a fair warning. Uh, the Lord, he talks about things. He talks about things applying to all of life, right? He is, no area is off limits to him. And so uh, I ask this question, or I, I think about this, like you might be wondering, why, why do we preach through books of the Bible in our church? And the reason that we preach through books of the Bible in our church is because if Alex was always picking what we were going to preach through, Alex would never pick this passage. Like You need to know this. I would never choose to select this passage. So we need to kind of sit with this reality, though, that the Bible is indeed real life, right? That it deals with real life things, that there's no area that God is timid about, that he's avoidant of, right? Like he talks about our money. He talks about our attitudes. He talks about our food, right? We've been looking at that. And um, he talks about our bodies. So uh, just to kind of give you an update on where we are, how we got here, all of this. So, um, so after we finish this week, we're going to wrap up the series uh, called Invasive God this week. We're going into the next section of Leviticus, a new series called Not of the World. And it's six weeks kind of looking at how God's people were going to entirely be set apart from all of the other people around them. How they were going to live lives that were starkly different from the people who were around them. So, so we're going to look at what it meant then. What does it mean for us as God's people to live lives that are holy today? And uh, so I, I just want to give a note here. A few weeks ago I said, hey, we're going to do a couple of weeks on discerning false teachers and discerning false teaching this fall. We are still doing that, but we're moving it to the beginning of January. So uh, January 7th and 14th, we'll be digging into that. Um, today, though, today we are finishing up a series called Invasive God. And this, is, uh, this series is regarding this category that the book of Leviticus calls cleanliness or purity and how that no part of life is off limits to God. So Leviticus 10, 10 through 11 God's kind of setting the framework for these passages that we've been going through. He says, you are to distinguish between what is holy and what is common. Notice that he does not say, you are to distinguish between what is holy and what is sinful. He says, you are to distinguish between what is uniquely set apart, holy, and what is just the normal run-of-the-mill life what is holy and what is common, between unclean and clean. Verse 11, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. We discovered that God is concerned primarily not just with their religious life, but with the entirety of the lives of his people Israel. And so the same is true of us, right? God is concerned with the entirety of our lives. So just a bit of a refresher. We need to remember it was, uh, when we're dealing with ideas of clean and unclean, because the words are going to come up frequently in our passage today, it was not sinful to be unclean. It was not immoral to be unclean. In fact, uncleanness would just be regarded as something like you could not walk through life without becoming unclean at various points and needing to become clean after you become unclean, 
right? So uncleanness simply meant two things for Israelites. It meant, number one, that you could not go to the sanctuary where God's presence is to worship. If you were unclean, you could not be where God is. And number two, it meant that you often, when you were unclean, had to be careful about who you touched or what you were around or where you were because if you were unclean, sometimes you could spread your uncleanness to other people. So it's common for all Israelites to go through regular patterns of becoming unclean and then becoming clean, and that's just normal for them, right? So these categories of clean and unclean, they helped them. I mean, one of the significant things that we've looked at is we said, well, this is helping them manage the spread of disease. Like, this is actually practically protecting them physically from being decimated from some kind of uh, food disease or some kind of skin disease that could spread through the community, right? But then Also, there's a more significant thing that these laws about clean and unclean were accomplishing, right? Purity laws, they helped Israelites steward their lives around worship, right? So so if you're thinking about your life and you have all, and everything that you do, you're thinking about, does this make me clean or does this make me unclean? What that means is that everything in your life is revolved around the question of, am I now going to be able to worship? Right? Am I now going to be able to go and be where God is? It's about stewardship of your time and your life to ensure that worship can remain a priority. Right? So, so if this will make me unclean, then I won't be able to go to the sanctuary. I won't be able to worship. I won't be able to make a sacrifice. I can't do any of that until I'm clean. And so the purity laws are really about stewardship. Now, I've got some good news for all of us this morning who are here. The Son of God came from heaven, and by faith in him, now we can become clean, right? Like, we don't have to, we don't have to wait through these processes. We don't follow these purity laws at a practical level as Christians, right? This is not something that we're seeking to kind of check off all the boxes on because Jesus came and by belief in him, we become clean. He says, you're now clean. Now at all times, because you are clean, you can be where God is. And that's something great to celebrate. Like we should just be really happy about that, right? What a gift. But These purity laws, what they do for us is they reveal to us something about God's values and God's character, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Even here in Leviticus 15, there is something that we can grasp about God's values. So that kind of sets the framework for us. Now, before we get into the passage, I just need to talk to you a little bit about how uh, Hebrew language works. I do not talk about Hebrew language all the time, but I, I want to kind of help us understand what's happening here. Hebrews, when they, uh, when they write things down, uh, they're very different in their thinking from how we think. So normally we think from beginning to end. Right, like we we trace a line, and we like when we tell a story, there's a beginning to the story, and there's a middle to the story, and then there's an end to the story. Or when we build an argument, there's a beginning of an ar- our argument, and then there's the middle of our argument, and then there's the end of our argument. That is not how Hebrew people think. Hebrew people think from the outside in which is nuts, right? Like I can't even wrap my mind around that because I want to see everything in a linear pattern, but they think from the outside in. So when a Hebrew person writes an argument, 
they will frame the argument at the beginning and the end. That kind of sets the frame for what they're trying to say. And then you move in from beginning and end to the next layer inward. And you see sections that relate to each other. And then you move another layer in and you see the next layer of the argument where sections relate to each other until you get right in the middle and that is the main point that the Hebrew person is trying to make. That's what they're really trying to say. The, the most important thing in Hebrew thought is always in the middle. right? And so, so you're looking to examine that. So I say that for two reasons. Number one, it's good to just be aware of like, how do Hebrew people write? And it, you know, it doesn't necessarily apply to every single story that you're going to read. But it's helpful to be aware of that when people are writing things, that there's something in the middle that could be important. And so let's watch out for that. But then the other thing that it helps us understand is it really specifically applies to our passage today because it helps us to understand where the main emphasis of the passage is. And that's how we're going to work through our passage today. We're going to work from the outside of the passage into the middle of the passage. So Leviticus 15, the frame of the passage, verse 1 and verses 32 and 33, they set the framework for us. Verse 1 says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, that's the introduction, but then the conclusion is the other part of the frame, verses 32 and 33. This is the law. And in verse 33, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. So these set the framework for our conversation. This is health class for the Israelites. That's really what Leviticus 15 is. It's health class for the Israelites. God is going to talk frankly to them about fluids and parts and sanitation of all of those things. But where this differs from maybe the health class that you had in school is that health class for us was like, here's some information that you can figure out how to use towards your own ends. And God says, hey, here's some information that you can figure out how to use towards my ends. Right? You're going to use this towards the things that I am prioritizing. And so he's teaching them how to even steward the processes of their bodies under his authority. So uh, verse 3, we go in one layer to the next part of the argument. 15, Leviticus 15.3 and Leviticus 15.25. It says, this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. And then verse 25, it says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, she shall be unclean. So God is being very polite here, which I actually appreciate. He's using kind of vague language, but he's specific enough that you know exactly what he's talking about, right? So, uh, so every Israelite who reads could piece together that we're dealing with issues uh, related to reproductive parts in both cases. And specifically in this case, we should understand that the kind of discharges that he's referring to here are abnormal or unusual discharges, meaning that uh, these things come about not just from the normal goings about of life, right? They come in in an unusual way. They're abnormal. They come about as the result. Typically, what you're dealing with here is some kind of disease or some kind of infection, right? So, so this is just not in the normal range of human experience, both male and female. And so in both cases, God's looking at male and female and saying to both of them that they are unclean. Pop quiz, was it sinful to be unclean or impure? 
Okay, good. I'm glad we're getting that. All right, very good. So additionally, in these cases, you not only have to be concerned about your own status, but how you would spread that status to other people because you're dealing with this kind of abnormal disease range. So uh, Leviticus 15, 6 and 7, and then 26 and 27 says, and whoever sits on anything that he has sat on or whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And in the same case with the woman who has an unusual discharge, every bed on which she lies, everything on which she sits and whoever touches these things shall be unclean. So God's clarifying the things that they sit on are unclean. The people who touch them become unclean. This is very similar to what we looked at last week with like skin diseases and leprosy. Right? God's making them very conscious of realities about how disease can spread. He's making sure that we're, uh, when we're dealing with categories of disease, and we talked about this last week, like when you draw near to disease, when your body is affected by disease, God's kind of saying, like, you have walked through kind of a part of the world where the smog of the atmosphere of sin is particularly thick. Right, so, so that you've walked through this place and now you, you've, it was like so thick, the atmosphere of sin, the way that it's just affected this world was so thick where you walked through that you actually came out the other side and you now have a disease on you. Right, and so, so you've gotten too close to sin that as long as this disease remains on you, I have to call you unclean. That's essentially the, the idea that's being communicated to them here. Right? He, wants to he wants his people to understand how even disease is such a blight on his creation that it infringes on his holiness. So by and large, things that contain disease or infection are the result of a world broken by sin. And God is making sure that they understand how significant his holiness is. As an Israelite, I need to make sure that I am clean before I approach God. And so when they overcome these things and when they become clean, which is kind of the case that's stated here, you know, when, when, uh, when you become clean, men and women, they are both given pathways back to relationship with God. And the pathway for both men and women who have incurred these diseases is the same for both of them. So we're just going to look at one of them. So verses 14 and 15 say this. On the eighth day, you shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. So they are both encouraged to make a sacrifice, both men and women, a sin offering and a burnt offering. And so what that means, what that is recognizing, is that we have drawn so close to sin even though we did not do anything, right? We have drawn so close to sin, so affected by the atmosphere of sin that now we, there's actually like a barrier in our relationship between us and God. And we need to make a sacrifice to have atonement between us and God. Okay, so that's the first layer. Then it goes in another layer. And 15, verse uh, 16 and verses 19 of Leviticus chapter 15, this is what it says. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And then for the women, it says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. So I, it's just worth asking, why 
are these fluid discharges unclean, right? That's, I mean, people deal with this question all the time. Pastor Don would tell us they are unclean because God said they are unclean. And that is actually one of the key principles to take away from all of this stuff, right? It's true because God said it's true, right? But there is something for us to understand un- under the surface to a degree, right? These charges, these discharges, they were common, right? They were a regular part of life, right? Which means that God is saying the commonness of that is not holy. And they, the Israelites, they need to be able to distinguish between the holy and the common. So uh, Leviticus 12, Leviticus 15, and Leviticus 17, they all talk about what it is like for a human being to lose what we might call life liquids, Right? Because if you read in Leviticus 17, it talks about how the life is in the blood. Right, that, that each of these fluids, they would carry life. And God is teaching the Israelites that these kind of intimate things, that they are to be wholly separate from the Israelites when they are approaching him for worship. That these things belong in a category outside of the realm of worship. So practically, what does this mean? Well, it means that they need to pay attention to what's going on in their calendars and in their schedules. Like God is teaching them about how to steward their time to ensure that they can still prioritize worship. Right? God is, I mean, one of the things that he's doing is he's giving women a break from worship duties in their pain and discomfort that comes along with menstruation. Right? God is teaching husbands and wives that marital intimacy is not the most important thing in their lives. Because he says, if you like carry out some of the instruction here, and if you look through all of it, he says that if they lay together during her time of the month, that he then becomes unclean for seven days. Right? God is training them to kind of think about how they're stewarding their time and stewarding their calendars and to see everything in their lives, even the most intimate parts of their lives, in terms of this question. How does this impact my ability to worship God? How does this impact my ability to worship God? And that question moves us to the very middle of the passage. Leviticus 5.18, the thing that is in the middle. It says, if a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. Okay, so the whole passage has worked outward to inward, and it's told us a story about human sexuality and about men and women and what they experience. And as we work inward, we see that the experiences of men and women are telling us a story about how God has wired human bodies and how he intended them to to work out, what he made them for, even how he intended our sexuality to be expressed. God is saying that I have uniquely designed these bodies and these processes that we're talking about so that husband and wife could come together and that from that can come life. And I am establishing my law to create a cultural context in which my people can be fruitful and multiply. That is what is at the center of this Hebrew health class in Leviticus 15. 
God is essentially telling his people this thing. And for what it's worth, he's telling us this too. Your sexuality points to God's design of marital intimacy. That does not mean that marital intimacy is the end all of everything that you were created for. But it is saying that he has designed sexuality in order to point towards this, to indicate this. But I I just want you to take note with me. Even though this is the point of all of these processes that have been called unclean, right? He's called every single one of these processes unclean. Even though this is the point, and even though this is designed by God, and even though God made men and women and said, this is very good, right? He said, for every part of creation, he said, it is good. He, and then he made something else, and he said, it is good. And he made man, and he said, it is good. And then uh, he said, you know what, though? It is not good that man is alone. So then he made man and woman, and then he said, it is very good. Right? That's, that's what he said. And so, so even though he says that, and even though God said that the two should become one flesh, and even though God commanded be fruitful and multiply, it's still very interesting, isn't it? That even marital intimacy, this thing that he uniquely designed, should be called unclean. It's interesting that he would call it unclean. Like, why? Why would he call that unclean? If he designed it, if he was so intricate, if, if the reality of both man and woman's sexuality like point to the existence of this thing, why would he call it unclean? Can I tell you what God knows? About you, about me, about sexuality in general? God knows that human sexuality is powerful. Right? That it's actually, it's designed to be this thing that would bond husband and wife together. That that it would be so powerful that it would like create, strengthen this bond. And human sexuality in a world that is fallen can be distorted and twisted and exercise its power towards evil. Right? So God says to them, Sexual intimacy, I'm going to call it unclean. Pop quiz, was it sinful to be unclean? Okay, thank you. So what does it accomplish by calling it unclean? Remember, unclean meant that it had no place in sanctuary worship, that it had to stay wholly separate from sanctuary worship. Let's talk about pagan religions for a second. In pagan religions, in witchcraft, and sorcery traditions, and in idolatry, and in all of those things that were practiced then, and I checked on the internet, I I read several articles in a magazine called Teen Vogue that is getting published for teens today, talks about witchcraft, and sorcery, and idolatry practices, and all of the forms that I'm about to talk about, just for what it's worth. Right, everything in this passage that God calls unclean, what Everything in this passage that God calls unclean, like every section, everything that you can imagine, everything that he calls unclean, was and is used by false religions to engage in false worship, to attain some kind of spiritual power, to cast spells or enact curses. Right? Egypt 
That, remember, all of these people who are getting this instruction right now, this is not the most formative things in their lives. It's only because God saved them and brought them through a sea that he split apart that they are now being caused to ask, oh, I wonder what this God has to say. But this is not like the most formative thing in their lives. The most formative thing is all of the years that they spent in Egypt being formed by Egyptian worship. Egypt had worship services for their fertility goddess. Like, worship services that these people that God had rescued out of Egypt would have been very familiar with. And do you know how I know they were very familiar with these worship services? Because right now, as the Israelites are receiving this instruction, we tend to think because there's a lot of text between here and uh, where they were in Exodus, right, at the foot of Sinai, we tend to think that they're somehow far removed from where they used to be, but they're actually still right now at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you know what they did at the foot of Mount Sinai? They're standing in the place where they built a false idol, a golden calf, and they worshipped it. And all of the context tells us that their, what we would call worship, was filled with all of the things that God calls unclean in this passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-8. The Apostle Paul, his life radically changed by Jesus. He's went out and planted churches and now he's writing to encourage and strengthen and instruct those churches. He wrote to one of those churches and he said this, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is a direct reference to Exodus 32.6. If you turned to Exodus 32.6 in your Bible, you would find that same exact phrasing there. You don't have to be creative to figure out what it means when it says they rose up to play. Right? We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. God says, I gave intimacy as a gift to husbands and wives, and it is a normal part of life. Don't let it become ultimate. Don't let it master you. Don't become so enthralled by it that you pick it up and move it into a different context. Don't make it more than what it is. Don't bring this thing that I call common into worship of me that you might then somehow turn the created thing into the thing that you worship. Keep this thing in the place that it belongs. That's what God is telling his people here. That's, this is where it belongs. Right, All the other false religions, they take sex and sexuality and elevate it into the status of worship. They say, use your body and its functions to attain power and receive blessing. And by the way, our culture today says, use your body to attain power and receive blessing and get everything that you ever wanted. And God says, not here. I created sex and my people will not be mastered by it. 
sex has, whatever place I give it. And it doesn't belong in sanctuary worship. So their takeaway, and by the way, our takeaway this morning should simply be this. This is our main point this morning. Every part of our sexuality belongs under God's authority. Every single part. Okay, so what? So what? Number one. Christian, take your cues on sexuality from God and not our culture. Right? So many, many in our culture speak with boldness and authority in schools and on social media and on TV about things that we ought to consider normal. Right? They tell us these are the things that you, could, you should consider normal. We draw, by the way, like just as we live and are shaped by a culture, just like the Israelites lived in Egypt and were shaped and formed by Egyptian culture, we live in a culture and that culture is striving to shape us and form us into its image. We draw our ideas of what is acceptable and not acceptable from our culture. We are inclined to let the internet shape and form us, and even worse, shape and form our kids about sex and about their bodies and about what they're for and what they're not for. Nearly everything in our culture, nearly everything that it has to say about sex and bodies is an ethic that has really just been developed over the last 50 years. I don't know if you know how ethics work, but ethics develop over a long period of time, thousands and thousands of years. And you know what we did? We, we went from an ethic that had been developed over the course of thousands of years and said, we have this new thing, or at least this thing that seems new to us, and we prefer that ethic better. And so we're going to go ahead and let that now develop, and we're going to rely more on this thing that is new to us than the thing that has been around for a, a long time and has stood the test of time. So, so uh, part of that ethic, significant part of that ethic, says that uh, consent is the only boundary that you need when it comes to human sexuality. And just to be clear with you, research done within the last several years has revealed that that ethic is incredibly wanting, that it's actually destroying people and their lives and their emotional states. Uh, everything about them is being damaged by that ethic. Now, some people can engage in that ethic and not have to worry about what it causes and what it does, but by and large, this ethic of consent only in sexuality has become destructive to our culture. So here's the thing, the chief thing for us as followers of God, of God, the God of the Bible, right? Our culture, they elevate sex into the position of ultimate experience, right? Ultimate experience, that's what they do. Right? That's, just, that's how it's being structured. That's how it's being lifted up. That's how marketing and sales and everything is building itself in our culture. And so when I hear things from Christians, like, well, those boundaries in the Bible, you know they're outdated. Or, well, I, I see, but that's just the way things are today. right? And you can't really expect Christians to live differently Our culture is actively bending the knee to sexuality. 
Like in the process, actively worshiping and falling face down before sexuality. Why in the world would you let your culture tell you what to do with sexuality when they are bending the knee at a false idol? Okay. Forgive me. Uh, Number two. So what number two? Worship is primary over every other part of life. Right? Clean and unclean was training God's people to steward their lives around worship. Even though we don't follow these cleanliness laws today, we are a saved people. We are a set apart people. We are the kingdom of light in the midst of darkness. And we recognize that worship is the thing that we now live for. Right? We live for the glory of God. We strive to say that that is what is ultimate for us. We are called to filter everything through a lens of saying, like, what does it look like for us to devote every part of us to God? And that means that we go through regular processes of checking our hearts and examining ourselves to see if we have lifted something up to the status of God in our lives. And I ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to us. If we are lifting something up too highly in our lives, that we would bend the knee to it. Because he's, he wants us to see it so that we can turn away from it. So that we can take the thing down. So that we can smash the idol and learn to put him in the place that he deserves in our hearts. So even the Apostle Paul knew that the cleanliness laws, that they didn't apply to Christians. He knew that. But he still applies this principle from Leviticus 15 to, his, to the, the Corinthian church when he writes to them. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, it says this. And I, I've, I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody preach on this part of this passage. right? 1 Corinthians 7, 5. It says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. He's writing to husbands and wives and he's talking about the kind of intimacy that they're to to have. And he says, don't deprive one another. And I hear people preach about that all the time, right? Like, oh, you know, I hear sermons where, where people have no problem talking about that. You know what I rarely hear them talking about is the last part of this phrase, this clause. Except by agreement for a limited time that you might devote yourselves to prayer. Right? The invitation that he's extending is to ask ourselves, are we giving something undue place or undue priority in our lives that it would actually diminish the place that God has in our hearts? And he's calling us, There may be a season where you need to go and just spend time in prayer. That's the thing that he wants you to do. And so all of this is taking the principle of just simply asking, what place does worship of the true and living God have in your life? And then finally, so what number three? Jesus offers freedom and cleansing to anyone who asks. This is the most significant. This is the thing that like, we're cheering and celebrating at the beginning. Right? Jesus, he invites us, and the way that he invites us is by saying, I'm going to die a death for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. And yes, I'm going to rise from dead, conquering death. But you need to note my blood. It's powerful. 
Like there are so many things, just like the commonality of life, walking through life, it will make you unclean. You don't even have to sin to not be able to approach God. Like that's literally what he's saying. He's like, you don't even have to intend to do something against God. Like you just have to walk around in this world to end up in a situation where you can't come near to God. And Jesus says, but I'm going to shed my blood and my blood's going to be powerful to make every person who places their faith and trust in me, it's going to make them clean. So that whenever we want, we can walk freely into the throne room of grace. We can draw near to our Father. We can experience the love and grace that he has for us. We can hear his voice talking to us directly. We can experience all of that and know that he is not near us, not around us, not somewhere over there. He says, I am with you to the end of the age. And that is something we should be celebrating. And we're going to do that in just a moment here in communion. But first I would ask you to pray with me, church. Lord Jesus, what a gift it is to know that though this world is corrupt and and failing and fading and things are falling apart, that the world is tending towards chaos and that we are in the midst of it and we cannot walk in the midst of it without getting stained by it. That you have given us this thing called faith in you and that through that faith you extend the purity of your blood to us to give us life and to make us clean. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of being able to be clean, to then now walk through the veil straight into the presence of the living God. And even uh, now we say thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence with us this morning. I pray that whoever needs to be met by you to know your love, to, to, to have you draw near to them, Lord, whoever's maybe even feeling a particular sense of a way that they have failed or a way that they have sinned or a way that they've betrayed you, I pray now that you would draw near to that person, Holy Spirit. And you would know, you would enable them to know your nearness to them right now. That's a gift that we can have through your blood. That right now we can know you draw near to us no matter how dirty we consider ourselves to be or how unclean we consider ourselves to be or the things that we've done right now is available to us. The opportunity to be reconciled to you and to draw near. Holy Spirit of the living God, would you minister the love of God to our hearts this morning as we continue in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.